Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. In the last paragraph of the new book, Making Your Crazy Work For You, the authors write, Finding my way into love is a revolution against the occupying force of irrelationship. Paradoxically, this revolution requires not defeating, but connecting with the pain, fear, and loneliness that have long driven my crazy. Choosing to make these connections and walk the road of relationship sanity is to reclaim my birthright and to give, uh, to give and to receive love and to be transformed by both. Please stay with us for the next hour as author and psychologist Dr. Mark Borg Jr. joins me for a discussion about the new book from the Irrelationship Group, Making Your Crazy Work for You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. Welcome to the program, Dr. Borg. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here uh, looking out at the East River in New York City, so it's great to be here in Alaska. New York City, have you been uh, hammered by the winter, or is that a little bit further south? Uh, we, we've had some winter. We got some freezing, freezing cold last weekend. We had a little bit of snow, but... It, so far, winter hasn't been devastating here. Uh, not not yet. Yeah, I guess it's been sound, uh, pounding the Carolinas and and Tennessee, uh, but sparing y'all so far. I, I have to, I, if I can, I'll tell you like a, a tiny little funny story. I, so I'm from Southern California. I took a flight to get back to New York over the holidays, and my flight landed in the warmest possible place, which is Orlando, Florida. But I, all the flights were canceled, and I wasn't going to be able to get out for three days. So I got in a car with my family, my wife and two kids, and we drove up the I-95 right into the worst <laughs> storm and gridlock that I think uh, Virginia has ever experienced. So I am not getting a whole lot of winter here in uh, New York City, but I got the most profound dose of winter I think I've ever experienced in my whole life trying to get back from the holidays. Oh, wow, Ooh. you drove right into that mess, huh? Right into it. Just You just could not. In fact, a rental car, the morning we woke up, wouldn't start. Which, I mean, when does that ever happen to a rental car, right? It wouldn't start. We had to get AAA out here. We, we, if we had hit that rental car on time, we would have missed the storm. So it's almost as if some force said to us as a family, <laughs> and maybe it's in preparation for this interview, I don't know, but some force said, you know, you're going to have to really rely on each other you're going to really have to cool your jets. You're going to really have to be patient, loving, tolerant, right. kind with each other. And ultimately, of course, that the book, this book focuses on with yourself, with myself. So it was quite an adventure. Well, that's ah. a that's a great transition into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I need to take just a second to remind our listeners uh, that we value your participation. So. If you have a question for Dr. Borg or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways you can connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our phone number is 907-550-8433. If you are listening outside of the Anchorage area, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way is to email us your questions. That's line1 at alaskapublic.org. Got to spell out line one, L-I-N-E-O-N-E. We will do our best to get your questions on the air. All right, Dr. Borg, if you could uh, maybe 
take us away, start us off here with a little bit uh, more about yourself, your background, and the Irrelationship Group, uh, the experience, uh, um, the history and mission of that group, why it was started, and, and what you all are doing there. Um, let's see. Um, so so I, I wound up, I landed in this field back in 1988, and I did some um, out-of-volunteer work, which actually kind of started out not quite voluntary, like I'd had a little bit of trouble, and uh, the, I was you know, happily kind of uh, pushed into the field of, uh, I think, very, very generally speaking, psych- psychology. I, I wound up working at a, a, a treatment center for developmental disabilities, and I went to a psychiatric hospital, got a job after that. was really inspired by you know, working with the adolescents at that hospital, so applied for and got a, a, a Ph.D. in clinical community psychology just in time the civil unrest in south central la in 1992 so i worked a a community revitalization empowerment project there at the same time i was working in an hiv aids clinic prior to protease inhibitors so at that time it was a death sentence right and then um and then took a took a gig in in new york city in 1997 got trained as a psychoanalyst and Started publishing a lot of academic work um, throughout the throughout the early 2000s. While I was in training, I was seeing patients. While I was starting to train my to get training to see couples and families and continuing community work. Um, so I just I by the time um, you know it was about 2008, I got very inspired uh, and concerned because I was seeing so many circumstances in communities and organizations and in my patients and in my clinical world of people who were sort of, I I originally called it human antidepressant, but then I started, you know, some more kind of facetious names like helpaholic. I saw a lot of people who were like helping other people almost like compulsively or addictively. And I started thinking like, I need to talk about that. I need to write about that. So I got together with two clinicians and we started working on this few months maybe maybe about six months that project completely wiped out because i realized i was being a human antidepressant to these two other people one of them had had just had relationship catastrophes that she was trying to avoid and the other guy had a lot of very serious uh substance abuse issues that i did not know about until we all started this project so that project it was it was called actually the human antidepressant project wiped out and I realized I was just compulsively caretaking or trying to these two people who not only were not happy about it, they totally attacked me afterwards. In fact, the woman drew up a huge lawsuit, and I had to get a lawyer. I mean, it was a mess, right? So that, that brings us right up to 2010 when Grant Brenner, Dr. Grant Brenner, who's a co-author of this book, and Danny Barry, who's a nurse and also a very good friend, said to me, like, hey, maybe we need to reframe this whole human antidepressant thing, not as like this pathology that one person is doing to another person, but maybe as a dynamic that people are playing out with other people, that maybe this whole thing about compulsive caretaking isn't something we just do at somebody or to somebody, but we do it with somebody. So we started reframing this whole idea of compulsive caretaking not so much as something that gets perpetrated on someone else, but really as this dynamic. And we're like, well, then what's it for? What does this dynamic do if I'm, like, compulsively caretaking and I've got this kind of operation that I'm 
not a, again, it's not perpetration because this is unconscious defense against anxiety. But what we discovered is that a lot of people who are in relationships were doing what we call the song and dance routine of ear relationship, and they were caretaking each other as a defense against getting close. They were doing, and they didn't know they were doing it. They didn't know that they were like caring and caring and caring like a fire hose, and the care was one directional. And what it wound up doing is it wound up preventing other people's care from getting in. And that's what we discovered, and that's how we got to this point, and that's when we wrote the first book, Ear Relationship. Then people started writing us and saying, we need, a, we need a solution for this. So we wrote Relationship Sanity. And then everybody started writing us and saying, what if I'm not in a relationship? What if all this stuff is still affecting me and I'm single? And that's when we wrote the new book, Making Your Crazy Work For You. All right. <laughs> that, sounds, uh, that sounds a lot like uh, that codependency sort of dance. Um, it's a lot like that, except, and we've actually written papers on this. We have a blog, we have two blogs on Psychology Today trying to you know, really clarify the difference. And the main difference that we find is that codependency, people are really kind of doing it too. And that's more like what human antidepressant was. That veered dangerously close into codependency. But the thing that makes this different than codependency, and it's vastly different, because we're psychoanalysts, we're looking at this as a psychological defense against the anxieties of being close with someone. It's literally two people create this defense against intimacy, empathy, vulnerability and emotional investment and they don't know that they're doing it because that's what a good psychological defense does a good psychological defense diminishes our awareness of anxiety but does not let us know it's there all right we're gonna get into where that comes from how it's created and and what we can do about it uh but for those of you who might be tuning in late uh dr mark borg jr is joining me today to discuss uh, the new book from the Ear Relationship Group, uh, Making Your Crazy Work for You from Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. If you have a question for Dr. Borg or a comment about today's topic, you can reach us in three ways. Our Anchorage number is 907-550-8433. Our toll-free number is 1-888-353-5752. And our email is line one at Alaska public.org. All right. Uh, Dr. Borg, as you mentioned, much of your early work focused sort of on the relationships between two people and that dynamic and, and how that causes a lack of true intimacy. But, um, then you describe this ear relationship, which is a term I had not heard of, uh, despite being in, you know, as a therapist, working as a therapist for the last, uh, now, Oh, 30 years, I guess, is, uh, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so can you, I know, I know, me too. Time is flying, but can you define yeah. ear relationship for our listeners? What is it and how it shows up? Okay, so ear, let's see, I don't know, if the, but you want the sprawling version? <laughs> you know I, mean? I, I can give you the nutshell and then try to fill in the detail because the nutshell version is actually pretty simple. You know, ear relationship is a, is a co-created psychological defense system that is uh, a means of compulsively caretaking that, interf- that, that diminishes our awareness of the anxieties that go along with intimacy, vulnerability, empathy, and emotional investment. So, you know, and we see it as a caretaking, a compulsive caretaking operation. And its genesis is early life when... A developing human being um, 
um, starts to register that their caretaking environment, or what Winnicott called the facilitating environment, which is really just another fancy word for parent, is detected to be a couple of things. One, highly anxious. Two, depressed. Three, uh, unava- you know, caught up in addiction or other, some other kind of abusive behavior. But the net, really, really, really the primary ingredient for a child to develop what we call an irrelationship song and dance routine is just the child at a very early age detecting that the parent is not fully able to care for the child. So what the child then does, it starts to develop what we call song and dance routine. It, it, it starts to develop a means of caretaking the caretaker so that the caretaker will at least be able to provide the minimal level of care that the child needs to survive. So, I mean, it, the, that's why we get into this in, this, in this title of this third book, Trauma. Because for a child to be developing in an environment that doesn't feel safe, for a child to be developing in an environment that feels dangerous, in, in which the parental care is ineffective, is basically for a child to be facing some kind of death. So it, it's really hardcore what the child develops. The routines often come across in kind of you know, fanciful ways, you know, as the developing child learns to be funny, to distract the, the parent from depression. The, the, the kid learns to be, you know, able to be right, you know, goes out into the world and, and is a superstar of some sort or, or one of the really dangerous kind of routines that a child might develop is absent. They will not come to the parent with any need, so the parent can go on and feel as if they're doing an okay job. Right. Meanwhile, the child is getting none of their needs met. All right. It's, I mean, the, the stuff you're talking about is uh, if we go back to Vanderkolk, uh, Bessel Vanderkolk, which you talk a lot about mm-hmm. in the book, is um, the, you know trauma doesn't have to be this giant uh, child abuse thing or this or a car crash right. or war. It can be the little right. T's, as as Dr. Vanderkolk talks about the neglect, right. the lack of attachment, the isolation that a child develops, and then what you're saying is this irrelationship sort of develops as a coping strategy, a way to get your needs met from a parent, say, who is emotionally unavailable. Um, and it's an adaptive, a, a maladaptive, stra- or it's an adaptive strategy that can then become maladaptive as we age. Correct. That's exa- that is exactly right. That, that, that's, that's a perfectly well put way of, just, of, of filling in some of the gaps of what we're saying. Because, yeah, that, that the small t trauma is the trauma of you know, just having a parent that isn't available, a parent that can't respond, a parent who's, again, and we, we I, I like your kind of, dis, the, the possible discernment between adaptive and maladaptive and how it becomes maladaptive maybe is more in the application of this technique to all other relationships right. as you're growing up and as you're maturing and as you're starting to choose romantic partners and, and, and friends and, and jobs and careers and education. Because if you keep applying that routine happens is and again the metaphor that we always come back to is you're a fire hose and you're out there like spraying down the whole world not real and feeling pretty generous and feeling pretty altruistic and looking pretty philanthropic perhaps but none of the care that the world has to offer is getting in and so you are suffering and ultimately there is a terrible terrible loneliness that comes from not allowing other people to contribute to your health and well-being, which is exactly what you did with your parent. You disallowed your parent to contribute to your health and well-being because you didn't think your parent was capable. You've taken this with you everywhere else, and you are suffering. 
you are lonely and you have inadvertently isolated yourself from you know, our primary resource as human beings is other human beings. Yeah, that's, uh, we're hearing the classic New York City uh, stereotype of the sirens in the background as you're <laughs> doing your interview. Um, all right, can you talk a little bit about how the book, um, how it's structured, it's intended to be sort of, as I was reading through it, it obviously it has a lot of, um, you know, things you can do and worksheets and questions you can ask yourself. I mean, one of the things that really sort of resonated with me was your example of being a, a giver and a doer, but never receiving help. And that's something um, that I'm still working on in my life is, is people ask me, like, do you need help moving that, you know, 200 pound cabinet? And I'm like, no, I got it. Um, I can do that. And then my back is hurt. And because I have, I've noticed in my own life, I have a difficult time allowing myself to be vulnerable and to accepting and receiving that help. But that's critical, uh, for our, our emotional wellness. So can you talk just a little bit about the book and how it's structured and what was intended, what people can expect when they read it? Yeah. Well, I also want to just quickly, if I may, you know, address what you just said, because I think that what me too, you know. I mean, if if, if I'm to be completely frank, I am patient zero for this project. You right. know, I'm the one that went out there, and at first, you know, <laughs> my first group, the one that wiped out. I mean, I had to take some responsibility. I think even though there were problems of the other people, I wasn't really letting those people contribute significantly to the project. In fact, I was running off. I, I wrote a whole manuscript, you know, of all the research that we were pulling up, and the two of them were like, "What the heck, Borg? Like, <laughs> I mean." You know, like, so, so the funny thing about a compulsive caretaker that doesn't allow other person's contributions in is we send the message to other people, you don't got good stuff to give. In other words, you're not valuable. I mean, mm. I know it's the least intended message, but it does get through when we don't allow other people to help us. So to your question, yeah, I mean, the book is in... Uh, several sections, and, uh, you know, we, we first identify crazy. And, and probably I should let the audience know what crazy is. In our definition of crazy, it's that thing I mentioned in the last response, which is if I'm giving compulsively, if I'm not letting anyone in, if nobody's contributions get into me, affect me, I can't make use of them, then I am suffering from loneliness. And really we define crazy, this traumatic kind of experience of loneliness, as being that that is our definition of crazy it's that isolated lonely feeling that we get and and the worst part of it when you're a compulsive caretaker is you don't recognize that you're lonely because you're so busy being all caught up in thinking you're helping other people so yes it's a real conundrum real first section is identifying the crazy the second section is treating your crazy which is a lot about not because this is a book for the individual unlike the other two books so we're actually talking about helping people form a new relationship with ourselves. You know, like that I realize that I have split off parts of myself that are not accessible, and it's the part of me that, that, that began to be dissociated, which is another way, way of putting, like, cut off, when I was a child. Those parts are still in there. I need to work to find them. I need to work to re, re, re-engage those parts of myself to nurture and love and care for parts of me that got cut off when I, you know, when I, when I flushed my needs down the drain and started taking care of my environment, i.e. parent. 
So, so ir- irrelationship is between two people. And then in this, in the book, you go into self irrelationship, which is what you're talking about when you cut off those parts of yourself that are no longer accessible. You don't allow yourself to be vulnerable even with yourself or to know and identify right. those pieces that you need. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, that's a really great description of, of what we're trying to talk about and what we're trying to help people access is that when we've cut those parts of ourselves off, they're still there. You know, contemporary relational psychoanalysis tells us uh, that, that when we are traumatized, even, even that small T trauma that you and I were talking about a little while ago, when we're traumatized, it creates splits in self. We're not talking multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, as it's called now. We are talking about places in our history, places in our self-experience that are no longer accessible because we've overly protected ourselves from whatever was going on at the time, you know, because I was traumatized. I didn't, didn't look like it. My parents just didn't feed me last night. You know, I didn't, it didn't look like it. My mom was just sitting on the couch uh, thinking she was okay because the TV was on, right. all, you know, all afternoon. You know, because so that's the, 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 the crucial question has a lot less to do with what was the terrible thing my parents did. We're not blaming parents, actually, at all. We're just saying that people... All of us, you know, are in different emotional states that we don't always recognize, and sometimes the effects of those states on our children can be, you know, really, really uh, difficult to, to, to live with. Yeah, I'm still not aware of all the ways in which I'm, I'm messing up my children. Um, I'm yeah. sure they will yeah. come to play yeah. out as they are adults. But uh, right now we are up against our first break. So if you're just joining us, Dr. Mark Bork Jr. or Borg, sorry, uh, is joining me today to discuss his new book, Making Your Crazy Work for You from Trauma and Isolation to Self Acceptance and Love. If you have a question for Dr. Borg today or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Anchorage phone number is 907-550-8433. Outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to get your questions to us is to email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. I have noticed a trend of folks... uh, calling in late in the show and then we don't have time to get to uh emails and and questions so call in early or email us early and we can get your uh question on the air so after this short break we'll continue our conversation about uh irrelationship with self um i'm prentice pemberton and you are listening to line one your health connection on alaska public media You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. With Omicron spreading fast, many Alaskans will test positive for COVID-19. If this happens to you, what should you do? Head home and isolate as best as you can away from others. Let your close contacts know they may have been exposed so they can quarantine. Get plenty of rest and stay hydrated. Call your doctor. Treatments may be available, especially if you are at high risk for severe illness. If your symptoms worsen, seek medical help. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services.
Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, Dr. Mark Borg Jr. is joining me today to discuss his new book, Making Your Crazy Work for You From Trauma and Isolation to Self Acceptance and Love. If you have a question for us today or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. In Anchorage, our phone number is 550-8433. I believe you got to dial 907 uh, nowadays. Um, our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org, or you can reach us toll-free from anywhere outside the Anchorage area at 1-888-353-5752. All right, Dr. Borg, I do want to clear something up that maybe we should have cleared up at the beginning, but this term crazy is something that we sort of like steer away from in the psychological community. But what the way it's used here is like, in truth, we all have our own crazy. And that is, that's what you're talking about, way to embrace our differences, our quirks, the things that that keep us from really connecting with people on a deep level. And so can you talk a little bit about like crazy has a stigma to it, but why did you choose that term for the title of the book? Um, and, and why do you believe that understanding, embracing, and really ultimately sharing our crazy with the world is important to good mental health and, and development of self-acceptance? I believe, not sure if we've lost Dr. Borg, I guess they're going to start working on that. Um, yeah, rather quickly, right in the in the middle. Um, so I'll go ahead and talk about uh, the stigma of crazy and a little bit about um, that idea of you know making our crazy work for us. It's it's I think a way of like I don't know normalizing each of our own differences and how we struggle with uh, keeping this stuff uh, secret and keeping, you know, it creates shame, um, which is a core component to a block in like mental and emotional health. And that idea like crazy is thrown around as a term of, um, you know, you're crazy or they're crazy or she's crazy. And uh, I'm getting the signal that maybe we have Dr. Borg back. Yep. Oh, are you back with us? Yeah, it's funny. I, I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me. So I, I, I think I heard everything that you were asking about. <laughs> uh, talk about crazy making, right? I'm like, oh, no, you can't hear right. me. Right. Yeah, it, it created I like a, a, <laughs> a moment of certain anxiety for me that uh, yeah. maybe I'll have to cover the next half hour, and I hope I get a lot of phone calls. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great because in a funny way, you know, we think uh, c contemporary psychoanalysis uses this great term. We call it enactment. And enactment is when <laughs> what you're talking about starts playing out in the dynamic of your relationship, right? So you and I just had this funny moment of like, oh, my gosh, you know, you want me to be connected. Oh, I want to – I so want to help you and be there with you on the show. <laughs> and it, it really like this funny – I wanted to caretake and be caretaken. And, and so I really – but I did get your – great question about crazy and we <laughs> you know it's funny because we were sitting at dinner one one night uh the three of us with our publisher and our agent literary agent and we were sitting there at uh, sarah best on park avenue um and grant brenner uh, dr brenner one of the co-authors he said uh 
He said, what about making your crazy work for you? And, and you know, just like, oh, you can't use that word. We can't no, say that. Canceled. You can't say it. You know, we're going to be canceled. And we thought, oh, we'll put it in quotes and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is we come from a school of thinking, Dr. Brenner and I. Uh, it's called interpersonal slash relational psychoanalysis, which actually sees loneliness as the ultimate intolerable human experience. And we believe that loneliness is so crushing that it drives us crazy. We cannot exist without each other. And this irrelationship thing that we talk about, that we research, that we study, that we write about, that we talk about, it is a recipe for isolation. You know, there's a funny quote that, um, that I hear sometimes, <laughs> which is, never treat your loneliness with isolation. And that's exactly what a relationship does. It treats our loneliness with isolation, though it doesn't look like that. So we decided to go, you know, really out on a limb and trust that people would be interested enough in what our definition of crazy is to give it a chance to not be this pathological condition or even a stigma or something that somebody calls someone else, but a almost like crazy as a warning sign, as a red light flashing in our psyche saying, I need help. I need help. Yeah, I need help is exactly what you said. It's hard for you to ask for when you're like lifting something, when you're moving your apartment. I need help is exactly what I thought I was asking for when I started this project to other people, and then I didn't let them help. That is what we mean by crazy. Caring for other people so profoundly, powerfully that we don't let other people help us. The crazy part of it is we just so often don't know we're doing it. We don't know it. I didn't know I was doing it. I thought I was totally hooking these people up. I thought, oh, I'm going to let these people share in this you know, profound idea. No. I was basically <laughs> trying to, you know, no, I was being, I was being like completely, you know, manipulative, uh, micromanaging, you know, and, and, and my great, great, horrible, horrible statement of the day was, after all I've done for you. Right. You know, like, come on, please. I give and I give and I give. I'll be on my butt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. Well, I love, uh, I love books and ideas that sort of um, help take some of the stigma out of the stuff that we all struggle with and we try to do it so privately because you know of the shame you know based of uh, like oh I'm the only one who feels this way or and that that idea that I can I need to you know buckle up and and pull myself up by my bootstraps and and handle right. all of this so I am really well, glad that you're back for the half hour the next half hour to help me <laughs> Um, because I was feeling quite anxious, and so that's uh, oh, a little bit of my vulnerability oh, I'm so there. <laughs> I'm so glad you called right back. It, it's funny, you know, because I work with a lot of people who've had substance abuse histories, and so that, you know, a lot of the substance abuse, um, you know, world needs uh, what we're talking about, like self-sufficiency, right? Yeah. This whole thing, like, I got it, I got it. They actually, some literature that actually calls that a bone-crushing juggernaut. The bone-crushing juggernaut of self-sufficiency, meaning like, I'm not going to let you in. I'm not even going to know I haven't let you in. I'm going to probably feel resentful because you didn't appreciate me. I mean, all of that stuff, all those stories we tell ourselves about how helpful we're trying to be without realizing the reason why I'm being so helpful is because I don't trust that other people are capable of, tr of helping me. And that's right. what a horrible place to be, you know? 
Yeah, and I mean, this goes back to like our, our biology and, and our evolution and how we evolved as a species and, and the vulnerability that we as an animal uh, really are. We are so vulnerable by ourselves and we require people um, to, you know, groups of people. That's where we get our strength uh, is from that connection right. with others. And so that's why right. you're, you're, you know, the points on isolation as, as crazy making is absolutely true. When we live in that isolation, it's tough to like feel whole and well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I you know, contemporary evolutional evolutionary biologists have even reframed this idea of like a, like a primal horde with a, with a, you know, with a dominant leader. They're like, you know what would happen to that leader? He'd get killed. Because right. If there was a leader that was dominating the tribe, what would happen is everybody would like turn to him and then nobody would put their weight and then we'd all be eaten by whatever came along because, of course, one person is never going to be able to protect the whole community from even just the environment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Example. All right. Uh, I have an email here that I want to read that I think is uh, right uh, up your alley here. Um, right. It says, I am the epitome of trauma that happened a long, a life a long time ago. I moved 23 times in my first 18 years of life. I am a compulsive caregiver and have lashed out at people who love me, i.e. my husband. I don't know how to nurture myself. I know what I need to do to be healthy, but I never take the steps to do so. Every word you two are talking about is me. On a positive note, my oh. daughter is well-adjusted. She thrives. I love this talk. Oh, that's so awesome. See, I, look, by you, reader or listener, you, I'm telling you, you are breaking out of that prison cell of isolation by writing that email. That is you saying, hey, Borg, give me a, you know, lob something, oh, well, lob a little bit of care over there, you know, right. to me. I mean, because, you know, again, that acknowledgement that this listener is making on air right now with us tells the whole story. I mean, that's the, we really believe that, that <laughs> what that listener just did is the crucial moment. Like there's, we, we even think like, okay, look, the difference between one and a million, billion, zillion is nothing compared to the difference between zero and one, right? So we've just, you listener have just created this space for yourself to actually consider the possibility that you've been caring outward, that you've been pushing all that care and that you haven't allowed yourself to receive. And now maybe you can make that break just by what I'm saying to you right now. I hope so. Take it in. This is me caring for you right now. And well, that, that <laughs> is the, uh, the first step is right. admitting that, talking about it, saying, this is what I do. I see it. Um, that's right. And then we'll talk more about, uh, well, I guess we can move right into, uh, like, one of the concepts that was helpful in thinking about this is the idea of brain lock. Can you talk more about yeah. uh, the idea of brain lock, how it's created, reinforced, and, uh, and how it plays out in our adult relationships? Yeah, I mean, brain lock really is, in some ways, exactly what it sounds like. It's the neuro neurobiological, interpersonal, socio-contextual components. You know, all of those things that go on, even like as deep as oxytocin, which is that the, the brain hormone that's involved in mother-infant bonding, breastfeeding, romantic pair bonding, pro-social functions, empathy, compassion, dopamine, which is the reward 
neurotransmitter. I mean, these things, there's neural networks that form by the way in which we relate to other people. So these things get ingrained in us very early on. You can see these things in brain scans, the way in which these neural networks are formed in ways that either are more accessible, like, say, through dopamine, through, through reward. The reward is actually me being in close human interaction with another one, especially oxytocin, because that fires off when we're close. Go figure the places that oxytocin fires off most powerfully are other infant breastfeeding and orgasm. So, you know, you see that if we're defending ourselves psychologically and even neurobiologically from allowing other people to contribute, that it's going to shape the way that our brain adapts to the environment. But brain lock also includes the interpersonal and socio, you know, social context, you know, our culture, our society, what messages we're getting from our family. All of these things we see interlock, again, to put us in that, I think of it as a straitjacket of your relationship. You know, again, maybe that's a little ham-fisted considering the reference to crazy. But again, if we're isolated from each other, we are going to be crazy. And that's why, you know, Grant and Danny and I really look in our book at all these different ways of helping people unlock brain lock, starting with, you know, what our listener just did by saying, hey, my loneliness is flashing right now to the point that I'm going to write an email to these two dudes on the radio, right? you know, and see if they can acknowledge my pain. All right. I had this uh, a 12 year old girl once we were talking in a session and, and she looked up to me and said, I think what you're trying to say to me is that the habits that I create as a child, I will carry forward into adulthood. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. I mean, these things are set sort of like in a concrete sort of cast. They get cast into patterns of thinking and patterns of relating to people. Um, And so what this book does is sort of help us recognize those patterns, which are the crazy, and then begin to, through recognition and sharing like our listener did, um, and vulnerability is how we begin to to change that. So can you talk uh, about the idea of self-other help? Everybody's read a million self-help books, but what is this uh, self-other help, and why is, this an import- why is it important to differentiate that? Well, okay, so back to the school of thinking that Grant and Danny, well, Grant Brenner and I are formally trained psychoanalysts at the interpersonal school, and, um, and our main, uh, the, the main kind of thinkers in our school are Harry Sack Sullivan and Eric Trump. And they really, especially Harry Sack Sullivan, decided back in maybe the, the 30s, 1930s, that all these, so many of these people that were unreachable, specifically schizophrenic people who were diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, they could be reached. They were just shut off. They were shut off from, each, from, from the outer world. And so he started looking at, you know, these splits in self. He started, he really grabbed hold of Pierre Janet from the 1880s his concept of dissociation and started thinking about ways from experiences of himself. And what we thinking, not me and Grant, but our whole school of thinking started, started really considering the possibility that inside each person are multiple self-experiences. And I don't mean multiple right. uh, personality disorder. I mean that for as many different significant relationships as we have with other people, there's a part of myself especially the major significant ones like my parents, for me, my grandmother, who was like this like beloved, beloved person. 
both externally and now internally since he's been gone a while. But, you know, all of these really significant relationships start to inhabit our mind and that therefore our mind is, if you'll uh, you know, allow the term, is peopled. The mind has people there, these significant relationships. So the reason why we call it self-other is because we're trying to get the conscious self in contact with the others that inhabit our mind for really good reasons. A lot of them are there, and we're not making use of them. Like I just said about my grandmother, look, if I'm stressed, if I'm overwhelmed, I go to that part of myself that is my relationship with this person. Or even, and here it gets a little trickier, but when I'm with a patient and I see the primary tool of the kind of therapy that I do as being my willingness to empathize with what they're going through. So if I have a patient, since, since I don't believe empathy is your emotions jump out of you and into me, I believe that empathy is my willingness to go to a very, very uh, similar emotional place. Right. So if you're terribly sad in session with me, all I have to the day that my grandmother died, and I'm telling you, I can even feel it now, like I will be with you through that loss. I will be with you and so that's an other and other. That's an other that is very, very close to my conscious awareness. But we all have all these others. And our book is also an attempt to help, all three of our books actually, are attempts to try to help put the reader in contact with these lost others that can be very helpful when we're, when we're really struggling and lonely. The different aspects of ourselves. That's right. All right. Um, well, I'll read this email real quickly, and then I'll take our next break because I want to give you time to think about the answer. But so what are the steps for ourselves or anyone? Are there steps like Hatha Yoga? I get the concept, but then what is the question? Mm -hmm. So we will, right. uh, I'll let you think about that on our break. So if you're just joining us, Dr. Mark Borg Jr. is joining me to today to discuss his new book, Making Your Crazy Work For You. From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. After this short break, we'll continue with more of our conversation about how you can make your crazy work for you. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you are listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in today, Dr. Mark Borg is joining us uh, to discuss the new book, Making Your Crazy Work For You, From Trauma and Isolation to Self-Acceptance and Love. If you have a question for Dr. Borg or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our Anchorage phone number is 907-550-8433. Our toll-free number is one 888 353-5752 and our email is line one at alaskapublic.org alright before the, the break I read an email that essentially said I get the concept what do I do now to help 
myself to break out of this self-ear relationship uh, that we've been talking about. So where does somebody start, Dr. Borg, and how do they go through this process? Well, you, you might have realized that I, I I do get a little carried away sometimes by you know the questions. I, I get so excited about this stuff, you know, I'm like... I'm like 12 years into this project, and I'm still like, whoa, I love that question, you know? So you asked me about the sections of the book, and I got to the first two, I know. but I didn't get to the third. Which is The third is called now. Bending, Blending, and Mending, and it is all about the steps that we take to reach those lost parts of ourselves. Grant, Danny, and I have been working on this, um, this, this uh, basically, uh, I don't know if we don't really call it an intervention, but a process that we call the dream sequence. And that is, again, our first listener who posed the question already got to the first stage, and that's discovery. Like, I just got to catch myself in the act. I got to be able to go like what I did with my first group. I got to go like, hey, I'm not being generous. I'm being, uh, <laughs> I'm being, uh, I'm being a manhandling. I'm, I'm a man-blaining. I'm, 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 I'm being tyrannical. I'm not allowing other people to help. So the first stage of the dream sequence is discovery. And then we go into what I think is the most crucial stage, which is interactive repair. We're looking at every single flaw, everything that goes wrong in a relationship, including our relationship with ourselves, as an opportunity for what developmental psychologists call rupture and repair. That means every mistake I make, every time I blow it, every time that I run into a conflict or I'm you know, basically not able to come up with the answer myself, it's an opportunity. There's the rupture. And every single time that I go off the rails, I can use repair as an opportunity to become stronger, to become more aware of myself. That leads to the, the next stage, which we call empowerment, which is really just what it says. You know, like now I am empowered. Now I have you know, a, a sense of efficacy and esteem and power to actually go deeper into my, this relationship that I have with myself and even to start experimenting with whether changing my relationship with myself begins to change my relationship with the world, that is, other people in my world, then leading to alternatives. We start to create alternative ways of interacting, alternative ways of treating ourselves that might result in what the person asked. It could be yoga, exercise, changing diet, uh, you know, I quit smoking or drinking or what, what, whatever it is. That, that alternatives might include those things. They could. And then the final is kind of ironically, it's, and it wasn't ironic for the first two books because the first two books were for couples. But it's a little ironic now because we're saying <laughs> the M is still mutuality. And we're still saying that we are trying to be mutual. We are trying to accept and deal and live with and experience this multiple self-experience that exists within us. And trying to integrate all those experiences of self. Take that self out into the world, much more aware of what we need and what we want from our environment, that is the world itself, other people in it. So basically that's, that's the, the sequence. It's the full third, last third of the book, so it's a little more complicated. Um, but we, but we walk, we, we've walked people through uh, two other books, and uh, we'll walk you through this one as well in the dream sequence. Right, and there are lots of uh, um, worksheets, I guess, the questions and answers, and, and they're... Yeah. broken into different sections where you sort of help to, you know, you outline how people can 
identify uh, these areas. But I think, um, can you talk about that a little bit more about the mutuality with uh, with self and why that is like critical? Well, I mean, it's critical because again, it puts us in touch with those lost parts of ourselves. And yes, the original splits in self dissociation are about trauma. But the problem is, I mean, of course, we need to protect ourselves from being, you know, un- uncared for or being cared for ineffectively or, or certainly from any kind of abuse. But the problem is the mind sometimes works as a, you know, uh, with, you know gets rid of the baby with the bathwater. So, you know, we're trying to get back in touch with some of this traumatic self-experience and deal with it, you know, piece by piece so that we can also get back in touch with, like I said about my grandmother, right? So we can get back in touch with those lost parts of ourselves that we're actually contributing to our health and well-being, those parts of ourselves that actually were loving and caring and kind and still have hope. Or I don't think you'd read this book. I don't think you're going to be all the way through this interview if you don't have some hope that there is something, someone out there that can still reach you. And that, you know, in the book, that someone starts out as me. Like, I can still reach those lost parts of my go into that. We even have this tool that we call the 40-20-40. And basically what it's about is about creating a give and take between these parts of ourselves and allowing those lost parts of ourselves to contribute to our sense of self, to our well-being, to our health, and then taking that 40-20-40 model into other relationships. Because we do want the person to develop a better relationship with him or herself, and we also want the person to go out and experiment with whether or not that better relationship with ourselves also results in better relationships with, for instance, with our first uh, listener, uh, a relationship with a better relationship with her husband. Is sounds like things are going pretty well with her daughter. That's good. <laughs> no. Right. Um, that forty twenty forty model. I think that's an important idea and help me. I mean, make sure I understand it right. But it's like if we we look at a football field and we have somebody on the zero yard line and the hundred yard line, it's really hard to yeah. to make connection and to have a dialogue and to do any like collaborative work. But if you move closer to the right. forty yard line, um, then you create this sort of twenty yard space in between where the work is done. Is that? That's right. That's exactly right. And we sort of modeled it originally on the, the original way in which we saw your relationship, which was there's usually a giver and a taker. So we asked the giver to back all the way back to 40. We're like, okay, you can still give 40, but no more. And then we asked the taker to move up to 40. Right. Right? So that if the taker is now saying, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for at least 40% of what goes on in any interaction in this relationship. And the giver goes, okay, I'm going to back up from like a 99, I'm going to back up to 40. Then you get this 20, right? You get this 20 in the middle that's us. It's our relationship. It's our relationship. And and similarly in this book, about that. So, and, and just, I, I will give one little parenthetical here, which is, for the first few years, I was like, there is no such thing as a self-irrelationship. Guys, it's a co-created psychological defense system against the anxiety that go along with intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, an emotional investment. But the more we applied our own psychoanalytic model to splitting of cells and trauma, the more I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. Not only is there self a relationship, but it's crushing. So that's that's what we're here for, the, the prison break, you know, out from self a relationship. Because it's a you know, that crazy is it's 
basically solitary confinement. Yeah, it's applying the same principles, like, because when we have a lot of conflict with someone else, we're not understanding them. We're not hearing them. We're not able to put ourselves in their shoes and really get what they're trying to say. And, like, the idea of self-irrelationship is that there are aspects and parts of ourselves that, as you mentioned, we are broken away from. We are not willing to hear and to allow that access to our consciousness necessarily. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think um, along with that is a sense of, uh, again, inadvertently protecting ourselves from those parts of ourselves because we're so afraid that, you know, we're going to just get back more of the same old, same old, you know, that somehow or other, yeah, I'll bring back these old memories. I'll bring back these old experiences. I'm going to be just as blasted as I was when I was a kid. And, and, you know, con- and constructed that psychological defense system. But, like, one of the things we keep encouraging people is, like, you're not a kid. You probably got a lot of resources that you're not aware of. You probably got a lot of ways that once you make this prison break, you're going to find that you're not alone. Like, this is a world thoroughly peopled, and the only way in which we are able to cut ourselves off is from this psychological defense system that tells us we're okay when, when we're not. Because that's what a psychological – remember – I mean, from, from my school of thinking, the whole point of a psychological defense system is we say, you're okay, you don't need, you don't need anyone, you're, you're, you're fine, <laughs> you know? All right, so the same uh, emailer emailed another question, which really actually just jumps perfectly, like she's right in line with where I was headed. Um, All right. Because you talk in your book a lot about compassionate empathy and good self-parenting so and self-compassion but her question is please address shame and blame how to not shame myself how to not blame myself it keeps me it keeps in a, the loop on broken oh my gosh that is such a great question and compassionate empathy in our model really is the answer because if you think about what shame blame and criticism criticism and all those things do, they're secondary reactions to something that's much more vulnerable. Usually it's something deep, deep, deep down in our experience, as simple as pain or fear. And so if you think the way in which we've covered up the pain and the fear is shame, anger, blame, criticism, you know, what those are, there are ways of distancing ourselves from the raw, vulnerable state of emotion that we're really trying to protect ourselves from. And so the answer to this question for the compassion and empathy is, first of all, to allow ourselves to have this empathy with what it must have been like for that child, to have compassion and care for this child that had to develop such a strong, powerful psychological defense system that they protected themselves from their own experience, and then to ask whether our places in ourselves that we can be vulnerable. I mean, for instance, if I'm listening, and if I'm able to look at my shame and my guilt, and I'm willing to go deeper and say, how did I construct that? What's it for? Is that basically a way of saying, like, I got it. I, I'm already going to punish myself. You don't have to bother anymore. I got this. I'll take your criticism. I'll take your punishment. I'll take your ineffective, ineffective care so that when you see me, I'm beating myself. You don't have to bother. And again, it, it, what it does is it puts us out of touch with the raw, vulnerable vulnerable emotion that goes along with really being traumatized, which, again, the primary emotions underneath that are going to be pain and fear. We're able to get underneath that. We're able to have compassion for ourselves in the pain and the fear, the raw state, 
then we will be able to start loosening our interpretation. We'll be able to start loosening that grasp, ways in which we look into ourselves and judge ourselves, because that's what blame and shame really have a lot to do with. And I really like to... is the key. Yeah, compassion and empathy and good self-parenting. I often tell my clients to think about, like, where is shame born? And it's like a core belief about self. It is not feeling guilty about a behavior. It is I am bad. And that is born in childhood. So that good self-parenting, it seems like, is about you're talking to your own inner child the way you would your own child. And if your kid says, I am bad... You would not say, yes, you are bad. You are terrible. You would say, no, sweetheart, like that's something that you can feel, you know, bad about that behavior, but it does not make you bad. It's not your core self. That's exactly right. That, that's so crucial because this whole psychological defense system that is a compensation for inadequate care, really like you said, and you said it so right on, it becomes our sense of self. And that's why it's so overwhelming, and that's why it's so... Um, so effective at, you know, isolating ourselves from all kinds of, uh, you know, counter evidence. And so this book, we are trying to help the reader create counter evidence for themselves that, that really, like, flies right in the face of the, like, bone-crushing juggernaut of self-sufficiency. All right. In the last uh, in the last 30 seconds that you have, can you talk about the importance of being vulnerable in this process? Really, there is no other road to being reached and reaching other people. There is just no other road. We have to find a way to loosen that the grip of the psychological defense system, and the best way to do so is to be vulnerable when it's safe to do so. And so you can take it piecemeal, right? You, I'm a huge fan of experiment. I love experimenting. I'm like, hey, you don't have to go out there and drop all your guard at once. Go out there and run some experiments to find out where it's safe to be vulnerable, and ultimately where it's safe to be vulnerable to yourself. So you can take in these other kinds of experiences that really allow you to love and be loved. That's what it's all about. All right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Mark Borg, Jr. I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. It was a great conversation. Um, As always, you can let us know your thoughts about today's program on line one at alaskapublic.org. Please join Dr. Jillian Woodruff next week as she hosts the first of our Talk to Your Neighbor series. Thanks to Line One producer Adlon Baxter and to our audio engineer Tobin Shelby. For all of us at Line One, thanks for taking the time to listen in today. Until next time, I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.